We've been going through the book of Acts, uh, verse by verse, and we've come up to verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. This is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. It says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia, the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the Word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that you would uh, take the feebleness of uh, man's lips, that you would enable it to uh, bring the comfort, the consolation, the exhortation that uh, you intend into the lives of each one of us. May we grow not only in our knowledge, but in our, in our obedience to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed, but the fortune cookies that you open up in Chinese restaurants usually just tell you what you want to hear or something so obvious that it's ridiculous. Uh, there's one uh, fortune cookie that said, in one hour, you're going to be hungry again. And uh, that was definitely true of me, but might not be true of some people. Cause I was always hungry back in those days. Uh, but if I ever ran a Chinese restaurant, here's the message I would probably want to put into the cookies. Stop trying to find your fortune in a cookie. Go get a job. <laughs> and I'm just about as cynical when it comes to some of the discussions of guidance that you have out there. Some views on guidance really are no different than people going to a fortune cookie to see what my future is going to be or going to uh, somebody to read a, uh, what are those globes uh, called, you know, the gypsies read, um, or having a, a crystal ball or something like that. And there, there's a real problem, I think, in Christian circles in understanding what exactly is the guidance of the Lord. Now, I'm all for guidance. I believe it is a part of the Christian life. I'm not denying that, but I think it's very important that we try to avoid some of the counterfeits that plague the Christian church. And I love this passage because I think it hits right on the head uh, the nail that needs to be driven into the coffin of some of these, um, these false views of, of guidance. Now, this is not going to be a complete sermon on guidance. I already have a booklet that uh, covers uh, that subject. But this does, I think, bring some very needed and helpful corrections. The first thing I want you to notice is that God's guidance was not a substitute for Scripture in the life of Paul. In verse 6, it says that they were going on a missions trip to Galatia and God's uh, guidance diverts them to a different country. And so the question is, why were they going to Galatia? And I would say, well, it was the freedom of Paul to map out and go to the different countries because the Great Commission says they needed to go to every country uh, they were in obedience to the Scriptures, seeking to preach the Gospel where they could. Uh, we don't need guidance in order to obey the Scripture. The moment Scripture calls us to do something, we are under obligation to attempt to fulfill that Scripture in some way or another. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. And What I want to do is I want to use this passage 
and chapters 16 through 18 to isolate four ways in which this principle is being violated many times. Uh, first, I know people who contradict the Bible through their supposed guidance. I talked to a pastor. I may have mentioned this to you before, but I talked to a pastor in this city who was divorcing his wife and was in the process of trying to get another woman to divorce her husband so that uh, they could get married. I confronted him, talked with him for several hours, and I was rebuking him initially saying that this is sin. This is wrong. You ought not to be doing this. And he said, well, no, God has given me guidance that this is okay. And I said, well, it must be the devil who gave you guidance because I'm telling you the Scripture right here is written by the Spirit of God. He does not contradict himself. And Jesus says you may not get, in your circumstances, you may not get a divorce. Well, he finally was convinced by my exegesis. He says, yeah, the Bible says I shouldn't get divorced. But it may not be God's perfect will, but it's still God's will because God has given me guidance. Well, that is absolutely ridiculous. Ridiculous. And uh, uh, guidance, we must uh, be convinced of, is never a substitute for the Bible. Nowhere in the book of Acts do you find any guidance in Paul's life that contradicted the Bible. Now, the flip side is just as disobedient. I have talked to people in this church, in my previous church, whom I have confronted over a sin that is so clear, right, on the surface, and they even agree that it is a sin, and they say, well, the Spirit's not convicted me of that. And uh, in one case, I was frustrated enough. It was a very serious sin. The person wanted to marry an unbeliever. And I said, well, get convicted because the Spirit of God is talking to you right now in the Scripture. (laughs) And and, uh, it could not be any more clear. And so um, we, we, need to, we need to understand that there are different ways in which people try to get around the Scripture. Lack of conviction, lack of guidance is not a substitute for a Scripture. It is a satanic counterfeit. There is a bumper sticker that says, if I'm not headed west, stop me and turn me around. And we could say just the same about guidance. If I am not heading in the direction that Scripture commands me to head, stop me and turn me around. I don't care what dreams or what visions you have had. Uh, If you're going east, away from the direction the Scripture says you need to be going, you need to be stopped. You need to be turned around. True guidance helps us on the path of holiness. It helps us to fulfill the Scripture. It is never something that contradicts or diverts us away from the Scripture. And I hope this refrain just rings through your ear that the Scriptures are the paramount thing in our lives. Another way of violating this principle is that some people will become very passive because they have not heard from God. They will stop moving. They'll spend days in prayer wondering if they should, for example, take a job promotion. And I said, $2 job promotion looks like a fit for you. I don't see any reasons why not take it. But they're just in agony over everything. I had one person in, in Bible school. I am not kidding. Every day he was trying to pray for guidance on what clothing he should wear, what he should eat. And he was so involved in prayer, he was avoiding the things, the duties that the Scripture clearly laid out that he ought to be engaged in. And so if the subject of guidance is making you passive, there's something wrong. Paul is not passive in this book. He's already moving. He's already implementing the Scripture when he gets the three forms of guidance that we find in this uh, passage. And one of the refrains that I frequently tell people is, God steers a moving ship. You know, a ship that's parked in the water, you can't steer it. It doesn't matter how much you move that rudder. It's just going to stay stationary, right? So God moves. He steers a moving ship. 
A fourth way this principle is violated is that some people fail to study the guidance that God has so clearly given in His Word. Okay, that's the guidance that covers everything in life. Proverbs says we need to search the Scriptures for wisdom as if we were digging for treasure, as if we were digging for silver. And so you might think of it this way. Why would God give you more guidance when you're already ignoring all of the guidance He's given to you? Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Think think of it this way, just in terms of investments. If you had $20,000 to invest, who would you invest that money with? Uh, Would you invest it with a a wealthy stockbroker who's just done fabulously with all of his investments? Or would you say, you know, I really feel sorry for this poor person. He never does very well and he doesn't have very much money. I think I'm going to give my money to him. He deserves it more than the rich person. Nobody would think that way. They would always invest their money with the person who's skilled, who's using it, and because of his use, uh, is, uh, is dependable. And I think that's exactly the way God treats us in the area of guidance and any other resource. Listen to Mark 4, verse 25. Jesus says, For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And that may not seem fair. God's going to give more to the person who already has tons and He's going to take away the little that this person has who doesn't have anything? Yeah, that's exactly how God's kingdom principles of investment go. If you're not using the little that you have been given already as a faithful steward, God's not going to entrust you with more. Now, you apply that to guidance. God is not going to give you guidance if you're lazy. You're not studying the Scripture. You're not digging it for it as for a treasure. Why would He invest more into your life, whether it's wisdom and illumination and understanding the Scripture or how to apply it uh, out in, 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 in real life? Elizabeth Elliot told of two backpackers who stopped by to see her in the rainforest by the Andes. And uh, these guys, the only thing they wanted to know was uh, to teach her, uh, her, her to teach them a few Indian phrases so that they could communicate with the Indians. Now, they didn't know the territory. They didn't ask for advice or anything. But after they had gotten these few memorized points, man, they went out and they just seemed as confident as could be. And uh, she really wondered about that. She said, this is really the way we many times uh, relate in the Word. We've memorized just a few phrases from the Bible. We go out into the world. That's all we need. You know, we're very confident. And it's a false confidence that's going to let us down. The Scriptures are where our confidence should lie. And if you look at Paul, he had, before he went into ministry, spent three years soaking in the Word of God. His worldview was so crafted by the Word that he was able to engage in all of the things that he needed to engage in with confidence. It carried him through even when there was no what we call guidance here, non-Scripture or outside of the Scripture guidance. Here's what George Mueller said. I will seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Spirit guides us at all, He will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to them. So that's point A. Point B is similar. Guidance must never become a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Peter tells us... in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the Scriptures give to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Scriptures are sufficient to make the man of God complete. 
you guys must have this memorized already, thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? So, that means we have everything in the Bible that we need. We cannot deny the sufficiency of Scripture with any theory of guidance that we might have. So, here's the question. Were the Scriptures sufficient to guide Paul in terms of destination, message, a method, and a goal? And I would say absolutely. Yes, they were. Uh, What was being forbidden in verses 6, 7, and 8? It was something that was already in the Word of God. What was being asked about in verse 9? It was something that was already in the Bible. You see, the the Scriptures gave Paul permission to go to whatever country he wanted to go to. He just wasn't supposed to be planting churches in Israel. Okay, He was the, 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 the apostle to the Gentiles. But there were far too many countries for Paul to be able to reach all on his own. So guidance narrowed Paul's focus within the Scripture, but was not a denial of its sufficiency. So what you might think of is guidance as a narrowing of the scriptural options, not a going beyond them. For example, we are not to look for any moral laws outside of the Bible. Now, the law is written on our hearts, right? That's a form of revelation God gives. He writes the laws on our heart. But there are the same laws that you find in the Bible. And yet you find these natural law theorists. They, 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 I don't like the Old Testament laws, they say. So they'll go and they'll try to discover natural law to supplement the Bible. No, that's completely wrong. The Bible is sufficient. We don't go beyond it for law, for ethics. We don't look for new elements of a worldview outside of the Bible. We have everything we need. We don't look for new axioms for education. The Bible is sufficient. But within that sufficient Scripture, God gave Paul permission... uh, Prior to his call, uh, God gave uh, Paul and all other believers permission to plant churches in Israel, to plant churches in, in uh, the, the Gentile nations. But when God gave Paul a call, he narrowed his focus. He says, I'm going to let the other apostles work on Israel. I want you to be going to the Gentile nations. And then he later on, he clarifies and even refines that call amongst the nations. And now what he's doing here is he is saying, Paul... I haven't prepared the soil up there in Bithynia. I haven't prepared the soil in Asia. I want you to go so that you're not spinning your wheels frustrated that nobody's receiving the gospel. I want you to go exactly to the places where I have prepared their hearts to preach. That's what uh, guidance is is doing. It's in no way a a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Okay, a third thing that we need to realize is that guidance is not a substitute for using our heads or for planning. Paul planned to go to Asia in verse 6, and the Spirit changes his plans. He then planned to go to Mysia in verse 7. The Spirit again changes his plans. He planned to go to Troas in verse 8, and he ends up there, but he didn't stay there. The Spirit gives him a vision to go to Macedonia. But all the way through, he was planning, and the Spirit did not stop his planning. The Spirit was not opposed. In fact, we're going to be seeing shortly, the Spirit wants us to be planning. I want you to notice, though, the words in verse 10. It says, Now after we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Concluding. He still had to use his head, even after the vision, right? Uh, He was making a deduction to the best of his ability. Now, why is this point important? Well, it'll save you from legalism. It'll save you from uh, making stupid mistakes, overgeneralizing your 
your guidance like some people have done. Uh, it'll save you from submitting to the guidance of others in an unnecessary way. In fact, I, I knew uh, one missionary um, uh, biography. Um, if you've read many missionary biographies, you know exactly who this is. Uh, but this was in the 1800s. He was at a party and he saw a gal that struck him. And he went to that gal and he said, the Lord's just revealed to me that you're to be my wife. And she said, well, who am I to argue with the Lord? And she married him. Now, there was, I, I would say that's probably not the best way to go if you're the gal, you know. <laughs> there was another woman who had somebody play the same trick on her. And uh, she said, well, I'll, I'll take that seriously. But if the Lord wants us to marry, I'm sure that he will reveal the same thing to me. And I think it's a much better. You need to have confirmation. There is nothing infallible besides the Bible, right? And so uh, we, we must not submit ourselves in that way to the guidance of others. People will sometimes use that to manipulate us. Um, so she's using her head there. And if we aren't using our heads, if we are not planning, we're not going to get anywhere. I don't care how much guidance an individual may have. I've never seen anybody that's had to stop using their head and planning. Okay, it's a supplement. It helps us, but it does not turn off our brains. Romans 1.13, Paul tells the Romans, And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Now, the fact that he had plans that were hindered over and over again did not keep Paul from planning. No, he constantly planned. Purpose, planning, use of sanctified, what I call horse fence, is part of the Christian life. Kent Crockett said, Imagine going on an ocean cruise to an island. After you've been on the ocean for a week, you say to the captain, it sure seems like we should have arrived by now. When do you plan to arrive? Captain answers, plans? I don't make any plans. I just trust God to guide my boat through the wind and waves to the right destination. That sounds ridiculous, but many people drift through life in the same way. They make no plans, yet they believe they will reach their destination on time. If we fail to plan, we plan to fail. Making plans will cause us to act rather than react, unquote. And I think that is wonderful advice. Any guidance that neglects planning, that neglects using your head, should be discarded as counterfeit. Now, certainly, you've made plans. God's got the right to come in and change them, right? And we have to be willing to submit at any point. We have to say, Lord, here's the plans that I'm making. I, I, I sure hope that, that I'm using proper sense, but Lord, change them any time that you want. And he'll blue pencil, he'll change them with his providence, and it'll be quite clear to you that he is doing so. Next, guidance is not a guarantee of immediate success, lack of trouble, or even that you are going to achieve something great and spectacular. Now, that's the way fortune cookies read. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's the way many so-called prophecies nowadays read. They're just telling you what you want to hear. They're making you feel good. They're puff piece uh, type things. You look at the guidance that Paul received in the book of Acts. Many times it led to discomfort. Many times it led to a disastrous situation like Paul is facing here. In verses 11 through 15, we do not see much great success from this, this, this big shift that God makes in his plans, which would have been expensive in terms of time, and it would have been expensive in terms of added you know, finances that were involved as well. So what are the results that he gets in Philippi? Well, initially, there's only one family converted. It's a single mom and her family. Then in verses 16 through 24, Paul and Silas end up in jail, having been beaten. They're in great pain. And yet, they don't doubt God's guidance. 
They know God intended them to be in this jail. They're singing praises to God. They're trusting God's guidance. Now, I bring that up because there are people who have gotten clear guidance from the Lord that they need to be doing something. They need to be going somewhere. And then they begin to have second doubts because everything seems to be going wrong. No. We need to realize guidance is not for our comfort. It's for His glory. It's for the extension of His kingdom. We're simply servants in His kingdom. And whatever God wants as a result of the guidance, that's entirely up to Him. Um, In verses 25 through 34, we see Paul and his team being forced to leave the city. How do you like them apples? Uh, You know, they've had this huge expense. They've gone. This is the place God has called us to. And they've converted two families and they've got to leave already? Well, that's the way sometimes God uh, does things. And if you have a Pollyanna view of history, you know Pollyanna, right? That, that, that Pollyanna story, that movie where it's just you, you get rid of all the negative verses and all of the negative things. You only think positively. Well, if you've got that Pollyanna kind of a view of history, you're going to get very discouraged uh, when you get into real trouble. And you're going to get into trouble if you're serving the Lord at all. Paul says, he guarantees, anybody who's seeking to be godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, right? So, uh, you're going to question the Scripture when you follow it and things don't seem to quite work out the way you had hoped or when you follow God's guidance and uh, all of a sudden you're uncomfortable. Uh, So, this passage is here to say that any view of guidance that sees it as always leading to success and comfort and greatness is a counterfeit view of guidance. God's guidance is for His glory we are simply self. Uh, we're simply servants in His kingdom, and you're going to find a lot of self-serving, self-motivated leaders out there who will use their supposed guidance to try to use you, manipulate you. You got to test it against the Scripture. Ask for God's confirmation. Now, God's guidance is wonderful. It is always for our good, but it's not always for our comfort. Okay, another misconception about guidance is thinking that remarkable guidance is constant a constant thing throughout our lives. Now, obviously, the Bible's guidance is constant. His providence is constant. But the kinds of specific direction that we're given in this passage is not. If it was, Paul would not have been attempting to preach in verse 6. He would not have been heading north to Bithynia in verse 7. He would not have headed to Troas in verse 8. Based on verse 6, Paul knows, okay, I need to be heading out of Asia. I'm not supposed to be preaching there. But he doesn't know exactly where he should end up. He thinks, well, you know, Bithynia sounds like a pretty good place to plant a church. So he heads up to Bithynia in verse 7. God lets Paul travel for quite a ways. And we're going to be seeing a little bit later on. There's a good reason for it. It wasn't wasted. God wants him to go far enough so he gets up to the northern route, uh, the Roman road that can take him straight over to Troas. But he didn't tell him that. He thinks he's headed toward Bithynia, right? He's going north. And so it's not wasted, but apparently in Bithynia, the field is not ready yet for Paul to preach. So the implication of verses 6 through 10 is that this kind of guidance is even rare for Paul. Now, if that's true, it has profound ramifications for the guidance debate. Now, I want to demonstrate this. You you see, I'm not just making this up. This all transpired in a couple of days. Let's go through some of the chronology. According to the detailed chronology worked out by Harold Honer, it took five months from chapter 15, verse 35, to chapter 16, verse 12, when Paul arrives in Philippi, Macedonia. And uh, 
so this is where the spirit wants him to be headed. He doesn't know it all the way through, but this is how long it takes. Now, here's the sequence. If you want to write it down in your margins, and I'll repeat it uh, when, when we, in summary at the end here. But uh, you may want to write this down because you won't get it in your commentaries. Uh, there are specialized papers that have written this, and it, it, it takes a lot of work to figure out the chronology, but I am very confident that this is, this is really solid. Chapter 15, verse 36 is April of 50 A.D. So this is when they depart from Antioch. Verse 41 of the same chapter would be later in April. Then chapter 16, verse 1 is May when they arrive in Derby. They're visiting the churches that uh, they had uh, planted in the first missionary trip and they do that all throughout the whole month of May. Now, some of this is guesswork, but it's sanctified guesswork because we know when they started, we know when they ended, so we've got the bookends. We know exactly the condition of the roads back then and how fast they could travel. We know that Paul is not allowed to preach in Asia, so all he's doing is traveling through Asia. So when you put all of those different pieces together, I think it's a pretty uh, pretty uh, uh, sanctified guesswork. Okay, I've put a map in your outlines. And uh, they give some of the dates and two possible land routes that he took. Uh, the arrow, uh, arrows that are further south, the black ones, from Bithynia are um, the more likely ones. Those are the ones you'll find in your uh, maps in the back of your Bibles usually, although there are some variations. Then there's a, a further northern one that's possibility. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says either one of those is a possible route that they had taken. Uh, let me start reading in verse 6, and we'll insert the dates as we go. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, I want you to notice the order of Phrygia before Galatia, even though they're traveling from east to west. There is a number of liberals who have said, whoever wrote this book doesn't even know his geography. You know, he's got these things backwards. No, they, they've got that all messed up. What had happened is that Phrygia was once cutting into where you see Galatia there. And when Rome set up the province of Galatia, it took over part of Phrygia. And uh, so literally the Greek, if you look in the Greek, it says Phrygia Galatica region. And uh, some, as I mentioned, liberals have questioned whether that can even be true. Well, recently they have found 31, in archaeological digs, they found 31 examples of exactly this language describing the region that Paul had planted churches at uh, before. And it includes Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. So F.F. F. Bruce paraphrases it this way. The Phrygian territory incorporated in the province of Galatia. Honer's chronology has Paul reaching Iconium, and I'm, I'm sorry that the, the uh, you probably can't read the Iconium, the little cities where each of those tiny arrows ends, but he's got uh, Paul reaching Iconium somewhere between the last of May to the middle of June, and then reaching Pisidian Antioch somewhere between the middle of June and the first of July. So you can put down June beside verse 6, that's fairly accurate, even though it does cover a span of time. Then continuing in verse 6, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Apparently, they were planning to travel slightly south and west to Ephesus. According to F.F. Bruce, that's the southwesterly thick arrow. But God diverts them. God, uh, Paul will end up in Ephesus a lot later, but God is not ready for him to go there yet. Verse 7, 
After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. Now, there are two possible translations here. The way the New King James has it, they don't go north until they've gotten all the way across Asia and through Mysia, and then they go north. That's a possibility. But the way F.F. Bruce and uh, Ramsey and others have taken it is that this is talking of It's kind of strange Greek. He's talking about coordinates. So he goes straight north from Pisidian Antioch, and when he gets at an angle that's directly across from Mysia, that's where God reveals, okay, you've gone north far enough, you need to go across. Either way, we can come to the same conclusion, but I just wanted you to be aware of those uh, two. And I, I, I do favor F.F. Bruce's translation as opposed to the New King James one here. Um, so, now that they've gone far, far enough north, God has them go west until they reach Troas. And if you're thoroughly confused by this point, just look at the map and I think it will help to explain it. Verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. They arrive in Troas sometime in July. Then in verse 10, they leave for Macedonia. And in the margin beside verse 12, you can put down August. So let let me just summarize all of those for you again. Chapter 15, verse 41 is April. Chapter 16, verse 1 is May. Verse 6 is June. Verse 8 is July. And verse 12 is August. I bring all of that up because I think it's important for us to understand Paul's subjective guidance was not constant. He gets guidance in the beginning of June to not preach in Asia. They start traveling like what looks like a good route. God says, no, you you need to go further north. And he gives them that direction uh, to go east late in June. Then in Troas, they get this vision that finally clears up what their final destination should be. So three indicators. I think the text is quite clear. There's only three indicators uh, within two months. And that's not exactly the kind of constant guidance that many charismatics insist that we need to have. I do believe in guidance. But uh, I think we need to be careful of not pushing it further than what the Scripture talks about. It's wonderful guidance, but it's obviously not constant. You can also deduce point F from all that we have said. God's guidance is rarely all that we would like. There are times I wish I had the kind of clear guidance that I've gotten several times in another country that I won't mention, and yet the Lord has not seen fit to give it. I obviously have not needed it. And uh, the same was probably true of Paul. Paul probably wished he had the whole nine yards, you know, when he was in verse 6. Lord, just tell me where you're going. You know, Does it have to be piecemeal? Do I have to be waiting constantly like this? He rarely gives everything that we wish that he would give, and yet, even as Paul uses his sanctified wisdom and there's providence and there's persecution and other things, you begin to see, wow, God is weaving this all together beautifully, so he's just where he needs to be at every given stage. Point G can also be logically deduced from what we've seen. Lack of constant guidance is not an excuse for inaction. The Bible calls us to action, and we're free to go unless more specific applications are given. Never an excuse for passivity. Now, if Paul had followed the advice that many people have given to me that I need to follow, they say, then Paul would have spent the next two weeks after verse 6 in prayer and fasting saying, okay, well, I know we're not supposed to be here. We need to be in prayer and fasting for two weeks trying to figure out where we're supposed to be. He didn't do that. No. He says, okay, I'm not allowed to go to Asia. Fine, I'm going to go elsewhere. 
He starts going elsewhere and God diverts him from that elsewhere, you know. And uh, later he directs him uh, to his ultimate destination. But Paul has total freedom to be active. He's active the whole time. The point is that guidance is not the basis for action. The Bible is. This is so important. The guidance is not the basis for action. The Word of God is. Guidance fine-tunes our action. And the analogy that I gave earlier, I think, is so apropos uh, that you can only steer a moving ship. The Scripture gives us everything we need to be able to move. And if God wants us to divert, we can just say, Lord, I'm open to any diversion, but until you change my plans, here's the direction uh, that I'm headed on. And so if you're receiving... Uh, if you're not receiving guidance, get moving. Start obeying the Bible. God is not patient with those who don't. He steers a moving ship. Now, I think just by weeding out what guidance is not, uh, we've already been seeing to some degree what guidance is. And so let's move on to Roman numeral 2 and see that God's guidance is so varied. God uses all kinds of things to guide His people. In verses 6 and 7, we have a couple of different ways in which He puts into their understanding... Uh, into their mind and understanding they're not to pursue their goal. We're not told exactly how God did it. It could have been through words. It could have been through premonition. It could have been a check in their spirit. We're not told. But frequently, when people are in tune with God's Spirit, which we need to be, they are given some kinds of of guidance like this that prevents them from getting into danger. This has happened to me numerous times when I've been on, on the mission field and because of the first time, I just ignored it. And it just was so heavy. I just ignored it. And sure enough, I got busted. Well, after that, I said, I'm not going to ignore this. And every time when I took quick action, we saw that we were prevented from getting captured just in the nick of time. And so it is a wonderful thing that God gives. In verse 9, he gets a vision. I've only had something analogous to this three times in my life, but each time it is accurately uh, spared me from danger. And in fact, in, in one vision at night, I actually had two visions back to back that the authorities were going to be coming at noon the next day. And so we continued teaching up until 11 o'clock and then left at that point. And uh, it's a good thing that we did. Notice in verse 10, though, that all the team members are involved in confirming that what Paul has heard is correct. Now, if they had to do that with Paul, they need to do it with us as well. Never treat any of this stuff as infallible. Only the Bible is infallible. So I want you to notice, Paul alone has the vision, but it says, we, plural, sought to go to Macedonia, concluding, so they're all concluding, that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay? They all had to be on board with this. They had to buy into it. That's what I did with the time that I had, what could be analogous to... Uh, a, 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 a vision here I said had a real strange back-to-back um, dream, vision, whatever you want to call it last night and it was so pronounced I'm convinced in my spirit that they're going to be coming uh, tomorrow but I'm just laying it before you and I'm going to submit to what your judgment is well it turns out two other people had exactly the same thing happen to them and so there was confirmation uh, amongst the, the group as a whole now, there are other very ordinary means of guidance in Paul's life. In verse 15, Lydia begs them to stay at her house. Okay, They have a need. God touches her heart to meet the need. Well, that's guidance. It says, so she persuaded us. Pretty ordinary, 
But this is a thing that God uses all of the time. Uh, you know, people uh, will have a need and somebody says, you know what, I've got an extra hundred bucks and I want to d- d- donate that to the cost. That is God's providence at work. So don't despise the ordinary means of providence uh, that are out there. Very important. In verse 18, we see that Paul's ministry response to a girl, because she's really annoying him, his ministry response ends, lands him in jail. I say that's providential guidance. He would never have gone into that jail of his own free accord, right? And so God's guiding him there. They're singing praises. Okay, Lord, what are you going to do? I know you've got something in store for me in this, in this jail. And how otherwise would that Philippian jailer have become a Christian? God had to guide him providentially that way. Uh, likewise, the earthquake presents an opportunity that might not otherwise have been there. And Paul seizes on the opportunity when he sees the jailer is terrified over this thing. And he preaches the gospel uh, to that jailer. And then later, he feels very strongly, given the circumstances, we're not just going to leave. We're going to force the magistrates to come and let, let us loose themselves. And then he's able to preach to them. Chapter 17 shows how God uses persecution to direct Paul out of one city into another that has been perfectly prepared by the Lord. And so God's sovereign orchestration in our lives is a part of His guidance. He's in the details, so to speak. Now, in that sense, God's guidance is indeed constant. It's all around us. But the kind that people are frequently seeking, visions, premonitions, speech, is not. Now, one very ordinary kind of guidance can be seen at the end of chapter 17 where people mock Paul. Uh, Christ had said, when people persevere in mocking the truth, just go elsewhere. You know, if you're planting seed and it proves itself to be thorny and stony and it's not growing anything, sanctified wisdom tells you, maybe I need to go somewhere where people will be listening. That's still a part of God's guidance. Then there's another night vision in chapter 18. And there are other forms in the book of Acts I'm just not going to get into, but I think this is sufficient to, to warn us we ought not to put God into a box. He is so creative, and we need to open our eyes to all the variety of ways that He guides. And I do want to focus on one area that could be very frustrating aspect of God's guidance, and that is that it's not always really clear. And it may seem like a waste of time for Paul to have gone all the way across the land to Troas when it would have been so much easier if God had given the guidance earlier when he was in Pamphylia, and then he could have just sailed all the way up, much quicker, less cost, so much easier, and yet God did not want to do it that way. And we need to ask, was this a wasted trip? It seems like a great deal of inefficiency here, but it was not. And I want you to see a hint in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. This is the first time in Acts that the author of the book includes himself as being a participant, and he uses the word we. Previously, it's they, he, they, but here now he starts to use the word we. And so commentators conclude that apparently this is the point at which Luke gets picked up, he gets noticed, he gets included on the team. If he had gotten to Troas earlier, and actually he would have just bypassed Troas altogether and gone to Philippi, Uh, Or if he had failed to go through Torahs, he may never have met Paul. And so God has him traveling just the right amount of time and to just the right uh, destination. So he runs across this surgeon, this this doctor, and uh, finds him to be a fantastic asset to his team. 
Uh, Luke is the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. So he becomes Paul's biographer. Here's what F.F. Bruce has to say. If the narrator was Luke the physician of Colossians 4.14, we may wonder if he was practicing his profession in Troas at the time or waiting to be signed on as a ship's doctor, but we have no means of knowing. At any rate, he accompanied Paul, Silas, and Timothy to Macedonia, having taken part in the joint decision to go there in response to Paul's vision. So, providential guidance. And it plays a big part in the guidance of Paul in chapters 16 through 18. Seemingly random events proved to be brilliantly guided moves on God's part. Even defeats and discouragements were important elements in His guidance. Now, point B simply says that in the face of several biblical options, God opens doors, He closes doors. and We might be a little bit confused when He uh, does it sometimes, but uh, um, I think over time we become more and more sensitive and trusting that God knows what He's doing in His sovereignty. Uh, Dr. Anderson uh, told a story of a pilot, and I don't know if it was a relative of his, that had been trained on how to fly just with his instruments. And his first time up alone, he gets caught in a, a thick fog, and he's wanting to freak out a little bit, but he does not do so. He's memorized the rule book, and he goes just according to the instruments. His intuitions keep telling him he needs to do something else, but he just ignores his intuitions. He follows uh, the, the rule book and he follows the, the instruments. And when he gets near the airport, the controller tells him, okay, we're going to have to put you on a holding pattern. And he thinks, great, you know, I'm going to have to wander around for a while. And for 45 minutes, well, he, he told him, look, I'm, I'm a novice. I'm not a professional up here, so I'm going to need all the help you can give me. And he says, you got it. But anyway, for 45 minutes, they guide him around the obstacles and other planes so he doesn't crash, and they get him to land safely. And everything was hunky-dory. Well, this is the way it is with our guidance. Scripture is our rule book. We've got to have it memorized. We've got to know it inside and out. And there are going to be times when our intuitions, which everybody says, oh, you trust your intuitions. Forget it. Don't trust your intuitions. If your intuitions are telling you to do something that the Bible tells you not to, ignore it. You've got to look at the instrument panel and say, Lord, I'm following your Scripture. And God, as we follow that Scripture, will open doors and close doors and help us uh, on our route that we are supposed to be going on. The last point is that guidance is gradual. Often it's a step at a time and it never diverts us from operating under the guidance of Scripture. And that, that's really the bottom line. When we come to a fork in the road, yes, it's wise to ask God for a direction. Lord, is there one choice that would be better than another? Please give me wisdom as I study and I analyze the situation. But if there's nothing about either choice that's unbiblical, and your sanctified wisdom in studying it does not make one choice preferable over the other, and you don't have any guidance that God's brought to bear saying, I want you to go this road, just do what you want. Just do what you want. God loves to give us liberty. Just do what you want. And I think that's what Paul uh, was doing in this chapter. Now, unfortunately, many people are so ignorant of what the Bible calls us to do in economics and politics and leadership and many other areas that uh, they become needlessly confused or more frequently they confidently make mistakes and think that they're okay. That's what happens. And so we started with Scripture. I want to end with Scripture. Without the Scripture, it's pointless to get guidance. It's pointless to get guidance. 
Uh, Lewis Carroll's hardly a good guide for life, but uh, I like this one part in the the movie, Alice in Wonderland. Alice comes to an icy fork in the road, and she's frozen in indecision. Which way do I go? And she lifts her eyes up to heaven, but she didn't find God up there. Instead, she finds that Cheshire cat staring at her, right? And um, the Cheshire cat, uh, she asks, which way should I go? That depends, said the cat. On what, she asks. On your destination, where are you going? Alice uh, kind of stammers out, I don't know. To which the cat says, then it doesn't matter. (laughs) And many Christians, I think, are uh, like Alice in Wonderland. They don't know where to go, what to do, how to do it. And so they think by looking heavenward, they're going to get all the answers that they need. And God is saying, if you're not willing to study the Scriptures... Why should I bother? It really doesn't matter where you go. Just do whatever you want to do. If you're going to ignore my scriptures, I'm going to ignore you in terms of, uh, of guidance. God will never use guidance as a substitute for scripture. The Bible says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. What we want many times is we want the secret of the Lord, but we're bypassing the means. The fear of the Lord comes as we study and follow and obey the Scriptures. So it starts with Scripture. Where does it end up? He will show them His covenants, the book of the covenant. So the book ends for guidance are Scripture, which produces the fear of God and obedience and an understanding of the Scripture on this side. They've got to be on each side of guidance or we're going to get ourselves into trouble. Let me repeat what George Mueller said. And he probably had more guidance than any other person I've ever read about. It's just unbelievable the guidance God gave to George Mueller. And yet uh, he insisted God ties it tightly to His Word. He said, I will seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Ghost guides us at all, He will do it according to the Scriptures and not never contrary to them. So let's rejoice in God's guidance, but let's rejoice even more in the fantastic blueprints that He's given to us uh, in the Word of God. And as we trust them and we follow them, God will bless us with further acts of His guidance on the way. Amen. Thank you, Father, for Your Word. Thank You for Your guidance. Uh, may we be so in tune with Your Word, so illumined by Your Spirit, Uh, that uh, the moment we receive any guidance, there's not a question in our mind because uh, like your uh, sheep in the Gospel of John, uh, we know your voice and we follow you. And we pray that you would bless this, your people, with an understanding of your Scripture and your guidance. In Christ's name, amen.